I don't think they want to trade those young guys, like the Vlanders and the Lettermackies. Like those are not the guys they want to trade. Now, if you're trading for a good player with term, that's when you start getting into those kinds of conversations. But I've heard those are not the guys they want to trade. Welcome back to Halford and Bruff Sportsnet 650. I am Jamie Dodd filling in for Mike Halford. Today, meticulously brewed for quality and taste, primetime craft beer is full flavor without compromise at a liquor store near you or visit the brewery to see how it's made. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet? What are you waiting for? And then you say, Kintech. Oh, really? I yeah, have to yeah. say Kintech okay, we'll, try it. we'll try it again. Okay. It's like a combo uh, we're, thing. We're coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet? What are you waiting for? Kintech. You did it way better than Halford. Has <laughs> you ever, nailed it the first time. It. He's like, Kintech. And yeah. Benny Halford's getting there, but he's like 80% of the way, and he's only done it 100 times so far. Yeah. You nailed it, Dodd, on your first take. Oh, boy. That's fantastic. Okay, um, so what was that we were listening to coming in? Uh, that was the latest 32 Thoughts podcast. Yes. Um, so Elliot. Hot off out, the presses. Who's been out in BC um, for the last few days. Um, I don't know if he recorded that one in BC or if he's back in Toronto. but um, Shocking revelation. The Canucks do not want to give up their top end prospects. Yeah, and and I and I and and listen, I I know there's some people that are just like so all in on this season that they're like whatever, don't worry about the future, but most of us are kind of like, hey, listen, we'll talk about trading a first round draft pick because mm-hmm. that first round draft pick is pretty close to a second round pick the way the Canucks are going right now. But uh Willander for me is just like no. Like, yeah, I see people yeah, wanting to trade Blender and Lacare Mackey for like a rental of Gensel. I'm like, oh God, no. Like yeah. not a chance. Yeah. I mean, I, I would I would consider something like Pod Colson. Um, but I would consider it for a rental of a player like Jake Gensel. Um, but you know, listen, those aren't the decisions for us to make. Um, and I know, and this is something that Drance really brought up. Now that you've got Jim Rutherford extended and you've got Patrick Alvin extended, those guys have more interest in the long-term travels of this team, and they're not all in on this season. I think that's true, but I also think it gives them more leeway to take risks as well because you're not in a position where if you do take a big swing and it blows up, right. that you're going to cost true. yourself your job. That's you know true. what I mean? Yeah, that's a good like point. If you go yep. make an aggressive mm-hmm. trade at the trade deadline without that job security, you're really putting your neck on the line in a way you wouldn't be doing right now. By the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or our beauties in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, what we learned is coming up at 830. We're giving away a pair of tickets to the Canucks and the Blues this Wednesday, January 24th to the best what we learned. So get your text in hashtag WWL. Make sure you include the ticket emoji for your chance to win. We will select and announce the winner at 
eight thirty. Let's hear the uh, the extended Elliot Friedman clip. This is from today's thirty two thoughts talking. You know, the setup from Merrick was how all in are the Canucks this year? Here's Jeff and Elliot. This is going to sound weird, maybe, but I'll throw it out there anyway. How yeah. all in do you see Vancouver being at this trade deadline? Like, are we talking? Like like first round picks, um, you know, uh, throwing you know Jonathan Lekaramaki's name around. Like how all in? I I think they're all in. I don't think like again they haven't told me this. I've heard this from other teams. I don't think they want to trade those young guys like the Vlanders and the Lekaramaki's. Like those are not the guys they want to trade. Now, if you're trading for a good player with term, that's when you start getting into those kinds of conversations. But I've heard those are not the guys they want to trade, um, uh, especially for a rental. They're not doing that. Um, you know, they're the, now. I should say. Some you never know what happens when a whole bunch of teams get involved, but I think they're willing to do the first rounder. I don't have any sense as we tape this podcast late Sunday night, early Monday morning, that there is willingness to do some of their top prospects. That's Elliot Friedman reporting. And as you alluded to, uh, Laddie coming in, you know, no surprise that they're not eager to go out and trade mm-hmm. their two top prospects, the two first round picks that this management group is responsible for in Tom Volander and Jonathan LeCaramacchi. There's a couple things that stand out there, though. One is that, you know, Friedge says, look, I'm not getting this from the Canucks, but other teams are telling me, which suggests no surprise here, but the Canucks are, you know, talking to other teams about players, seeing what's out there, giving other teams indications of, you know, what they might be willing to part with. But but I also think it's notable, you know, one, he doesn't say they're completely off the table and he specifically mentions, OK, for a rental, that's probably not happening. But mm-hmm. if you're talking about a player with term, well, all of a sudden that might become more of a conversation. And, you know, Drance and I were talking about this a little bit on Friday. But when we on the outside looking in are trying to think of, OK, who can the Canucks go get? Basically, what we do is we look at teams that aren't in the playoff picture and we look at their pending UFAs, right? And those are the guys who could be available. And so it's Lindholm, you know, Gensel if the Penguins fall out, Tanev on the Flames as well, mm-hmm. you know, Sean Monahan. But other guys become available, whether it's players with term, whether it's a team from, you know, on a, a fringe playoff team that doesn't think they're legitimate this year. Other targets become available, and I wonder if we do start to hear a little bit more about some of those other targets, right? That have a little bit. Sometimes more we don't control. hear about them at all, though. Right? Yeah, like how many? We didn't hear about Philip Perona no, before it until came. it happened, right? And yeah. so I wonder that you know. And then Durant celebrated. He was like, <laughs> he was, he was like, like Man, that is an awesome trade. Stanley the Cup, here we made. come. Yeah, <laughs> we hadn't heard much about JT Miller. You know, that's be, true. Being available, yeah. we probably knew that Tampa Bay would have to do something, do something. but. That came out of left field. I do want to read this text from JC in New West because this is a good text. The underlying numbers for the lotto line haven't been great for the last four to five games. They were awful in the Leafs game and only scored on the power play. Given the light competition for the next three games before the All-Star break, do you think Tockett might break up the lotto line and put Petey back at center with Kuzmenko and Mikheyev? Maybe one last set of games to get Kuzi scoring before trading him. I still think long-term Petey needs to be centering his own line, and hopefully Alvin is able to trade for a scoring winger so that the Canucks have two legitimate scoring lines in the playoffs. I'm going to read one more, mm-hmm. um, and it was about, I apologize, I've lost it in the inbox here, but it was about trading Mikheyev because right. he hasn't been doing that much and really hasn't since he lost 
he hasn't really, I mean, he's got 10 goals on the season, but, you know, there was a reason that Tockett went back to the lotto line. It was because Pedersen's line with McKayev mm-hmm. and whoever was up there wasn't working at the best rate possible. Yeah. I don't mind the idea of trying to, um, not, it sounds so like dramatic to say break up the lotto line, but I always get the feeling that Tockett doesn't necessarily want the lotto line together because I think he would want three strong lines and you've got the Garland line with Bluger mm-hmm. and Joshua and I don't think he's breaking that one on up. But once you put the lotto line together, then you leave a line of Suter, Mikheyev, and Kuzmenko. And I know a few people have texted in and said, I thought they had a strong game uh, against the Leafs, but... Uh, you head into the playoffs. I don't know if you want that yep. as, as one of your lines. Um, what do you think about the idea of in these next three games, maybe going back to separating PD and JT? So I think you're right. The talk it, I mean, he, he said as much, right. When he put them together at first before they really blew up in subsequent games that, you know, it was situational. We'll see how long it lasts. You know, the, the part from JC and new West about the underlying numbers of the lot of line when they were on the road, I think a lot of that was score effects. A lot of that was kind of the team being tired at the end of that road trip. You know, obviously it didn't go great territorially for them against the Leafs. I would lean more in these next three games to use it as almost, okay, here's the, here's the lot of lines chance to make their case to stay together, right? Like you've got three relatively weak opponents go out there and feast. You should dominate like you're going to be matched up against the Jason Dickinson line in Chicago, right? And congratulations to Dickinson on the contract and the year he's having, but the lotto line should absolutely feast in that matchup as they should do for these remaining three games. If they don't, then at that point, I think you take the all-star break and you kind of go back to the drawing board. The McKay point is really interesting because, you know, as we talk about, okay, what are their other avenues to freeing up cap space? Could trading McKay be a possibility? He has two more years left after this one at 4.75. So that's a pretty significant cap hit. Is that easier than trading Andre Kuzmenko? I'm not sure what it is with one year at 5.5. I think that's pretty difficult. And the thing with McKay is with Andre Kuzmenko, as soon as he stops scoring, as soon as he stops complimenting Elias Patterson on a line, it's like, okay, well, what's your role? Yeah. What are you going to do? How are we going to use you in a high-stakes playoff game? At least with Ilya Mikheyev, when his production goes dry, not that I don't, I don't think he's the same kind of defensive ace as he was in Toronto right now, but you can still trust him and in a two-way role. And I think if they did go out and get, let's say, uh, Elias Lindholm from Calgary, and you had Lindholm and Mikheyev and... Pew suit or whoever fill in the blank on the, on that second line. That's a line you can trust and play in all situations. So at least you have a role that that player can fill, even mm-hmm. if he's not scoring. That's why Andre Kuzmenko is such a logical piece to deal for me is because one, you open up a ton of cap space and I just don't see a world where in the next six weeks before the trade deadline, Andre Kuzmenko completely earns Rick Tockett's trust. Totally. I like that's such a big task yeah. given how far uh how 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 much gap there's been between how he's playing and the way Tockett wants mm. him to play. Do you think um let, let's say they they acquired Gensel. Let's just say yeah. because these are the conversations that the Canucks are going to have. Where would he play? So I think if you have Gensel, you probably you have to split up the lot of line almost, right right yeah. and you go pd gensel mm-hmm. miller besser those are your duos those, those are your duos, duos and you rotate yeah. the guys in and mm-hmm. look 
That's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty attractive. Those are two really good duos to have you at also, the top of your lineup. You also get a replacement on the power play. Right. Although hopefully Gensel doesn't bring the Pittsburgh power play to Vancouver. <laughs> um, That's a Lindholm would be a replacement on the power play too. could play on that in the, uh, on that power play. So I think both of those would work in a big way in the top six. Um, so we keep hearing that the Canucks are going to be aggressive at the deadline. They have their eyes on players like Gensel and Lindholm plus mm-hmm. a few others. Um, how much would you be willing to give up for a pure rental? Pure rental that you are not going to resign. Now, obviously, it depends on the player, but yep. Gensel and Lindholm are pretty high pretty caliber major. players. So, I have been banging the table for they should go all in on this year. They should be aggressive. There should be no untouchables in their system if they if you go out and get the right fit. Having said that, I think I agree with what Friedman was saying that if it's a pure rental, really, really tough to part with Lakaramaki or Tom Villander. I don't see the rental out there as much as I like Gensel, as much as I like Lindholm. I don't see the rental player out there that would make that mm-hmm. worthwhile. Beyond that, I, I don't think there's an asset in the system, in the organization that would give me pause. Like I would trade the first round pick 100%. Totally. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. And then, you know, Pod Colson, like I like Pod Colson, but he's also playing in the AHL and like his draft plus five year. And yeah. he's not exactly like he's good, but he's not mm-hmm. like the best player in the league or anything mm-hmm. like that in the AHL. You know, Achiratu, like him as a prospect, but I don't think you hesitate about trading him. The one guy, and I know Rick Dalio has been reporting that maybe they've they've kind of turned the corner on this as well. The team is Hoaglander just because Hoaglander's giving you value right now in the yes, lineup. Yes. So as much as he might have value could help you land something, you're also subtracting from your lineup. So for me, it's not so much that he's untouchable as it is. You have to factor in that you need the upgrade and then you need to replace his spot in the lineup too. And that's going to be hard to do. Um, why do you think there's so much interest in this market? We seem to be getting a lot of texts about Sean Monahan. I think it's because there's basically three UFA centers on the trade market, and it's him, Sean Monahan, mm-hmm. Lindholm, and Adam Henrique. I right. think that's it. And Sean Monahan still has like some of that name value, you know, high profile first round mm-hmm. pick in a Canadian market, scored a bunch of goals for Calgary. I don't see him as a fit at all. Like yeah. what the, the whole thing we're talking about is upgrading on Andre Kuzmenko, who the coach doesn't trust. Right? You need if you're doing that, you need to find somebody that the coach feels really good about putting on the ice in a tight playoff game in the third period. You know what I mean? And I don't, I don't know if Sean Monaghan is that guy, certainly not in your top six at this point in his career, at least with Adam Henrique. He's not the name brand player that Elias Lindholm is. He always doesn't have that upside, mm-hmm. but I think he would have that trust from talking. I He's think you could play him in those center. situations. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's Sean Monaghan. No. Like, I, I don't see what role Sean Monaghan fills on this team that they're not getting already from other players. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the NFL action over the weekend because we're going to talk to Mike Tannier mm-hmm. coming up. Um, obviously, the premier game of the weekend was Bills and Chiefs in Buffalo, and that game delivered. Uh, it was good right from the start. Uh, the Chiefs end up pulling it out <laughs> over those poor, poor <laughs> Buffalo Bills. And really, like the sports gods had... The perfect ending for Buffalo it was once yeah. again wide right, and man, it just kept going right. It was right, it was right, tough. right, right, right. I'm like, that's quite a slice you've got in your golf swing. That's the that's what it looked like, and I think the wind might have had a factor too. Um, there's a lot of things that happened 
before that kick. Like, I don't just put that on the Bills kicker who missed the kick. Obviously, if he made it, they, you know, they could have gone to overtime. The Chiefs might still, have, they still were, had some time to They still would have been giving the, the ball game. to Mahomes you with know, a bunch of time on the clock. Yeah. For me, that was about the Bills not being able to get the ball in the end zone. Um, that, that drive, it wasn't so much about the missed kick. And it was about yet another lost opportunity Mm -hmm. for the Buffalo Bills. But perhaps more than that, in a season where a lot of people were down on the Chiefs, and for good reason, they didn't look great for a lot of the season. And you wondered if Patrick Mahomes had enough weapons in the offense. Like, can he just rely on Kelsey, Kelsey, Kelsey? Perhaps the Bills were the perfect match for them in a way that they were so injured in that linebacker position that... Kelsey was able to take advantage of that and he was going to be the guy that was going to, you know, be Travis Kelsey against the Buffalo Bills. But also Patrick Mahomes now, this is going to be what his sixth straight season of going to at least an AFC title game. He's won three of them, won two Super Bowls and the other two that were losses, both of them went to overtime. Yeah. Like it is incredible. The, the 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 Chiefs were already a good team when Patrick Mahomes mm-hmm. arrived, but he really has taken them over the top. Um, their defense is improved, I think, based on what it's been in the past. Even if their offense isn't what it is, now they got to go to Baltimore to play a Ravens team that had a great season and looked so strong. We remember that Seahawks game when the Seahawks went to Baltimore and had no chance. Uh, I can't wait for that game because, logically speaking, you're kind of like, well, the Ravens will, the Ravens will be the favorites, wipe the right? Floor of them. Yeah. Well, I don't know about wipe I, the floor, I, but I, like they're three and a half point favorites. The Chiefs still have that. They're almost like the the Tampa Bay Lightning right now of the NFL, where you're kind of like, yeah, you know, even though if they are a little bit weakened and they aren't as strong as mm-hmm. some of the teams that they had when. They seem to have everyone going and everyone was at the right age. They've still got that Chiefs' ability to pull games out when they matter, and a lot of that is because of Patrick Mahomes. They feel like the new Patriots a little bit. Because you remember when the Patriots were in their heyday, they just had this aura of invulnerability. Like, no matter what happens, no matter what position they're in, somehow this is going to go the Pats' way. Well, that's why those losses to the Giants in the Super Bowl were 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 stunning. Stunning, right? And the thing they lost? Yeah. From the Bills' perspective, they put so much emphasis on not just, you know, getting over the hump and getting to the Super Bowl, but specifically beating the Chiefs, getting over that specific stumbling block. And you look at how that game developed. And look, there were some missed opportunities on both sides. I know Diggs had the drop on that incredible <laughs> bomb from Josh Allen. Yeah. But the two big breaks that stand out late in the game to me are McCole Herdman fumbling through the end zone for the touchback from the uh-huh. one yard line. Which, you know, another incredible game from a, a Kansas City receiver for McCole Herdman, Herdman in that one. And then Josh Allen fumbling on a third down scramble easily could have been recovered by the Chiefs in the fourth. Nearly, like very nearly a, was. It was nearly like, a scoop and score. It looked like it could have been a scoop and score or the very least they recover. Instead, it's fourth and four and they pick up first down on the next play. The offense stays on the field and it started to feel like, okay, they're getting these breaks. They're getting these breaks that so often go the Chiefs way or go against the Bills. Josh Allen is playing really well. Here we go. And then they get 
not quite in the red zone, but close in the vicinity and the drive just stalls out. And, and Peter and Cloverdale said second and nine late in the game, throwing the ball into the end zone, not just throwing a short pass was the turning point for me. Didn't understand it. It would help kill the clock to tie the game or score a touchdown with little time left. If they had scored then anyways, he means with the field goal uh, or sorry, with the touchdown throw Casey would have had three minutes to come back with their own TD. The thing is on the play he's talking about, I do think the receiver was open and what happens is the Chiefs defensive line just pushed an offensive lineman like right into Allen and kind of hit yeah. him as he threw. And I think that's why the pass was unsuccessful. So I don't have a big problem taking the shot to the end zone there, but it did completely backfire. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the player he looked away from or didn't target on that, the short throw that Peter's referencing is Diggs. Yeah, he's and I think wide that's open big, underneath. I think that's a big mm-hmm. part of the story is like Diggs just hasn't been a superstar for them Mm. this year and they kind of needed that and i don't know if it's chemistry or what it is but that was like he was wide open underneath and you don't throw him the ball he's supposed to be your stud number one wide receiver and he's just not impacting the game like that on a regular basis for the bills so you think the ravens are that good that they're going to wipe the floor with the Chiefs? i feel like again this is where though the having that pats like aura comes into it (laughs) because i think they should but then i also look at patrick mahomes going into buffalo and mccall herdman actively trying to sabotage the team (laughs) by all accounts and still somehow he comes out with a win Mm. and so yeah my my head says that the ravens are so much better than them that they're not going to be the chiefs won't be able to slow lamar jackson down that they're going to be fine and yet it's mahomes and it's andy Reid, and it's the chiefs so I can't quite get there in my heart. Can you imagine the Lions fans watching that Green Bay San Francisco game and thinking, "Oh my God! Like Green Bay's going to win we this. We might host. We might host. Holy cow! We might. We might host." And all of a sudden, Brock Purdy and the San Francisco 49ers, for the first time since like last year, came back in a game, and that was a big test for Brock Purdy because. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you saw him play earlier in the season when the Niners had fallen behind and they had a few injuries. You saw Brock Purdy try and bring the 49ers back in games, and it wasn't even close, right? He all of a sudden looked like the last pick in the draft. He didn't look like a guy that could bring miracles. That that was was probably like the biggest argument against Brock Purdy. When he was put in those situations, what was he going to do? What was he going to do? And against the Green Bay Packers, and yeah, the Packers made some mistakes of their own. But for me, the story was like Brock Purdy was put in a really pressure situation and he came through. And now the Niners are going to host the Detroit Lions and they're six and a half point favorites. We'll discuss all of this with Mike Tanier from The Messenger. Coming up next on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The snap is good. The ball put down. The kick is up. No good. Wide right. Wide right. The Bills kicker missed a field goal. Wide right. You remember the Top Gun, the first Top Gun movie, when they were <laughs> ripping the pilots, and Tom Skerritt walks out, and they said, well, that'll pretty much cover the flyby. Guess what? This will pretty much cover the fact that Patrick Mahomes, coming into this game, has never won a road playoff game. He has now, and he does it in Buffalo. And it goes on like this. Nailed it. I understood exactly where that was going the whole time, and it's totally worth the trip. 
That was, was exactly it, like Tom Skerritt in Top Gun. Was there an Iron Eagle reference in there at all? Maybe about the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> that was like Iron Eagle 4. Oh, and Bruff's like, ah, oh, yes, 4. <laughs> One of the best. Oh, welcome back to Alfred and Buff here. Sports at 650. Jamie Dodd filling in for Mike Halford. Meticulously brewed for quality and taste. Primetime craft beer is full flavor without compromise at a liquor store near you or visit the brewery to see how it's made. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today and the Monday Monday morning quarterback is brought to you by the Clayton Public House pregame to postgame the Clayton Public House is your home of football catch all the action on 15 screens and two giant projectors the Clayton Pub dot com and now joining us to uh, break down the weekend in the NFL playoffs look ahead to the conference championship games as well covering the NFL for the messenger he is Mike Tannier Mike thank you as always for doing this how are you I'm doing great. I got to admit, I didn't get any of those Top Gun references. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I think he started down a road, and then he was like, "Oh, I'm down this road. Where Where am I going? Where here? am I going here?" <laughs> yeah, that was the Chiefs' radio it. call. So uh, that was the first I heard of it. But yeah, I, I'm not sure he exactly stuck the landing there <laughs> on the reference. So I mean, let's start with the Chiefs and the Bills. And look, the accolades and the accomplishments in Patrick Mahomes' career so far are incredible, right? Going to his sixth AFC Championship game and his six years starter. You know, the playoff win the Super Bowls, MVPs. Of all those accomplishments, where does winning a playoff game on the road with this receiving core rank for you? <laughs> well, that, that's hard because we are looking at those accomplishments. Like, those are some amazing accomplishments along the way. I, I, all I'll say is it's a testament to how for real, for real, for real, the Patrick Mahomes as one of the all-time greats of the NFL is, you know, people, there are some folks who are still provisionally. Well, yeah, I guess he's a hall of famer. No, no, he's a hall of famer. Well, maybe he gets in the first bout. He's a first bout hall of famer. Now, if he decides to retire and do commercials, he's a first bout hall of famer. And you see that in this game where it, it looks like they, they're not matched up physically against the bills. The bills look like they are the more physical team that they're, that, you know, they're better uh, offensively. They're better defensively, et cetera. And Mahomes is managing the game. He's doing some of his heroics. He's doing these amazing throws. But he's basically taking everything he can get, milking every available point, and getting that team in position to win at the end. What did you think of Josh Allen's performance? Because he had some great plays. You know, the the passing statistics at the end of it don't look great. I know some people pointing out to, uh, I think it was the second and nine play where he throws to the end zone instead of hitting digs underneath. Overall, how would you assess Josh Allen's performance in that game? Boy, boy, Tony Romo at the end really was playing back at the end of that game. He knew every open receiver. <laughs> he saw every mistake. And it's like, hey, Tony, tell me about your playoff success. Show, show me your Super Bowl rings, Tony. I need to see them that you're, that you're going after Josh Allen like this. And, yeah, I guess there were some plays at the end Allen could get back. There were also two bombs yep. that bounced off of his receiver's hands. One, Stephon Diggs' hand. The other, okay, Trent Sherfield had to adjust the ball. And he's, you know, Trent Sherfield, not Stephon Diggs. Maybe that was a little bit of a tall ass. But Allen was phenomenal. Allen was phenomenal. The Bills overall were strong. There's just a missed opportunity here, missed opportunity there. Some guys out of the game on defense that they needed, so they couldn't really stop the run. You could manufacture yardage against them, and you have a mistake at the end there. And and that's what ultimately dooms the, the Buffalo Bills. Not Josh Allen. Allen is the reason that that game wasn't, you know, I don't know, 24 to 10 or something. Um, on paper, how would you compare this current Chiefs team to 
the best one we've seen in the last six years. You can choose whoever that team is. On paper, how would you compare them? This is the weakest Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, Chiefs team of all of them, I would say. It has the weakest receiving core by far. has a stronger defense than most of them, but you can see the defense has holes in it. A lot of it's getting schemed up. A lot of it is two or three top guys kind of running around and making things work for everything else. So this team is not as strong as last year's team. It's not as strong as the 2019 team. It's not as strong as the team that lost in the Super Bowl because they couldn't protect Mahomes, even though Mahomes had his receivers, he did not have his offensive line. It's kind of in that range. And, you know, off the bat, they don't really line up physically very well position for position with the Baltimore Ravens. So they go, in, they go on the road as underdogs in the AFC Championship game for a reason. Can you compare the weapons that Lamar Jackson has to the weapons that Patrick Mahomes have? Uh, yeah, you know, Jackson doesn't have a Travis Kelsey he may get Mark Andrews back, though, and Andrews is, you know, the next best thing and might be a little bit more, you know, physically imposing right now than the older Kelsey is. Uh, if you look at the receiving core, you know, uh, the Ravens have guys that aren't necessarily super reliable uh, either. You know, Nelson Aguilar is not known for his reliability <laughs> with his hands. You know, Odell Beckham kind of comes and goes and is a little more of a decoy right now than a threat. But when you look deeper and you see how well Isaiah likely has been playing in relief of Andrews and what and what the Ravens can do with a two tight end set if they get both of them. You got Zay Flowers, who's a, a little bit like Rashi Rice. You know, he's more of the short, yeah, nifty, shifty, catch the short pass guy, but he's the rookie that you have to rely on a little too much. I think overall the Ravens have a considerably stronger and deeper receiving core than uh, than Mahomes has. And, you know, you saw that last night where you know with the game on the line, Michael Hardman's getting the ball at the goal line. That's never a good decision or a good sign. So, how do the Ravens and the Chiefs match up? You know, I think the Ra- the Ravens throughout the season were you know the strongest team in the AFC, and then late in the season, the strongest team in the NFL. It was only masked because they had a couple of pass droppy games early, usually against very good opponents. You know, they, their losses come against the Steelers, et cetera. Chiefs are more inconsistent, better on defense than usual. Their receivers do not match up. Their running defense does not match up. I, I think overall, it's going to be a, it's going to be a very hard road if you're a Chiefs fan looking to get the upset in the, in the championship game. Let's move over to the NFC. How important was it for Brock Purdy to win a game in the manner that he did, i.e. he <laughs> helped his team come from behind in a game that looked like they might be kind of a colossal choke? I guess he helped his team come from behind. Yeah, I mean, I, he did fine in that final drive. That, that, was, that was good. You know, it's a good thing they got to the final drive. It's a good thing a couple of – Interceptions got dropped. It's a good thing. You know, McCaffrey ripped off a 40-yard run. It's a good thing. Uh, the, the Packers missed a field goal. It's a good thing. There was a, a weird spot in fourth down against the Packers. You get, you All those get are where good I'm things. going with this. You know, Purdy has led that team to playoff wins. If you're, if you're going to try and tell me that I'm supposed to be confident that Brock Purdy is better than Jimmy Garoppolo in this situation because we saw Garoppolo – you know, lead this team to the Super Bowl and not be good enough. If I'm supposed to still believe that Brock Purdy's that guy after that win, I'm not there. But I'm there in the fact that uh, this 49ers team can win with Brock Purdy at the helm, delivering a play here, delivering a play there, and not necessarily having to be the guy. How do they match up against the Lions? Oh, did you see the Lions defense yesterday? Yeah. They seem like... Mike Evans, I think, uh, had like 876,000 receiving yards, could mm-hmm. pretty much do whatever he wanted. And the Lions would get a sack here, 
uh, sack there against, you know, a weaker uh, Buccaneers offense. And it would hide the fact that, you know, they couldn't tackle well. They left guys wide open, et cetera. That's the Lions defense right now. Uh, you saw a little bit of it against the Rams a couple weeks ago. We saw it a lot in the regular season, but it was always against, you know, Nick Mullins and the Vikings or something. It's going to be a rough road for the Lions. I think it's a seven-point spread right now, and the, and the 49ers at home come by that, honestly. Do you think Debo will play? Apparently he's 50-50 to play. He's 50-50. You know what I don't need to hear from the 49ers after last year's playoffs is, what are we supposed to do? We had an injury. One injury. You know, like, <laughs> right. I, I don't need to hear that. It does make a difference. I have no idea right now, but of course, Debo does change things. If nothing else, for the confidence from both uh, Brock Purdy and Shanahan is they can run their full playbook and get these little underneath passes and turn them into significant games. Uh, looking at Detroit, because you know they've had such they've been such a, a good story uh, for this NFL season, and now they get to go to the NFC Championship game after beating the Buccaneers. How much of a template are they for other? teams that want to turn their their fortunes around right because you look at you know since dan campbell came in they go get jared goff and now all of a sudden they the weapons they have around jared goff their offense is really really impressive how much of this is something that other teams should be looking to emulate going forward i'm not sure because i'm not sure what lessons to take away if if you look at jared goff and say hey we could do that with baker mayfield or kirk cousins like that that's the road that could be the road to chaos. That could be the road to mediocrity a lot of times. If you look at Campbell and you say, Well, he works very well with Brad Holmes as a general manager who really brought in a lot of talent and his coordinators who have like a lot of autonomy do all these things very well and you know, they they built very hard on the offensive line. If you look at him and say, Hey, you need you need a, a Frank Ragnow and a Pede Sewell. Uh, you know, and a Taylor Decker, and then you need to like sort of like focus on balance. There's a lot of lessons you can take away from that. So I don't know. I think the two worst lessons are, hey, let's go get Jared Goff, or mm. hey, Dan, Dan Campbell yells about biting kneecaps and stuff. Let's get a crazy guy who yells a lot. I think those are the two worst <laughs> lessons to take away from it. And speaking of coordinators, uh, it's being reported on ESPN that the Chicago Bears are finalizing a deal to make Shane Waldron their next offensive coordinator. Yeah. Of course, Seahawks fans know who Shane Waldron is. He's been the OC for Seattle for the last three years, but Seahawks are making a bunch of changes. Uh, Pete Carroll is out, yeah. and so is Shane Waldron. Um, he steps into a very interesting situation in Chicago. Do you have any idea what the Bears plan to do with their quarterback situation, i.e. keeping Justin Fields or drafting Caleb Williams? Because it's their option. It's their option. They should really draft Caleb Williams because we are entering year four of Justin Fields' rookie year. You know, right. <laughs> if in year four, if in year four we're still talking about, oh, he looks like he did this t- a tiny bit better and this a tiny bit better in potential, that's life talking to you at that point. That said, I, I consider Waldron a pretty creative guy. I think I think he did some great things with Geno Smith early on. It didn't always go over well this year, but I, I never looked at that offense and say what a disaster, except when both tackles were hurt and it was kind of a mess. So I think he can be the right choice for either quarterback. The Bears are doing the right thing right now. You sit tight, you wait, and you wait for the phone to ring. You wait till some new coaches get hired, see if someone loves Justin Fields, and then maybe you can trade him for something valuable. See if someone goes banana pants and says, hey, seven first-round picks for your number one pick, at which point you say, hey, you know what, okay, we can, li- we can live with Justin Fields. Or, oh, by the way, we also have, like, the 10th pick. We can get a- another quarterback. Yeah. Lay low, pick your own staff, make some decisions in-house, and wait for somebody to pick up the phone with a bananas offer. For people that don't watch Justin Fields on a weekly basis, what is the biggest knock on him? 
you know, at this point, you know, he still runs very well, although he fumbles a lot at the end of these runs. You're not getting nothing but, like, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen-level runs. You get mistakes in the runs. After the first scripted drive, the Bears' offense stops. And it looks like when you have to sort of make decisions on the fly and you have to reach deeper into the playbook and everything hasn't been schemed up exactly right to get the ball to DJ, Moore, Cole Komet, uh, Fields just is not there, like, at all. And especially in the fourth quarters of losses, et cetera, uh, you, you see more of a guy who, okay, you're down, you're down by seven, you need the, the touchdown drive, holding the ball too long, trying to scramble against opponents who have, like, the spies on the field now to prevent that, or letting him gain five, six yards in the scramble because it's late in the game, taking sacks, not being comfortable with what he's seeing back there. And, again, if this was year two, you'd be like, okay, we get it, you're developing. This is year four. This is two years under the same coordinator, same coaches. At, at this point, you have to question whether he, you know he's he's going to be able to make decisions at that level at this point. I did want to ask you about a couple of the teams that lost this weekend, uh, Mike. The Texans and the Packers. You know, both teams that I don't, I don't know people would have predicted to be playing in the divisional round uh, with young quarterbacks. You know, CJ Stroud was fantastic all year. Jordan Love put some really impressive performances together as well. Of those teams, the Packers and the Texans, who has the brighter outlook going into next year? Well, I would say the Texans, because they play in a very easy division and it will be easy to sustain success, whereas, you know, the Packers are going to be in there with the Lions, and, you know, I think the other teams will come around. In terms of, like, the offseason, I think the Packers have a little bit more that they'll be able to. Actually, that's not true. I'm going to strike that. The first-round pick, because they still have the Browns' first-round pick, they can do a lot in a Harry. So I'd be the edgy guy and just say, hey, you know, next Super Bowl, Texans-Packers. It's going to be Texans-Packers in the next Super Bowl. I'm not sure I actually believe that. <laughs> but but both of these teams can go into this offseason and really do exciting stuff by saying, hey, let's add an edge rusher. Let's add a wide receiver. Let's trade for Stephon Diggs. He's mad. Let's see if he wants to play with C.J. Stroud. Let's do all of those things in the offseason, and that's going to be fun for these fans who have a lot to look forward to. Where is Bill Belichick going to land? I keep waiting for the the Falcons, and the Falcons keep throwing curveballs. So I don't know. If the Falcons don't work out, I don't know what happens. The Chargers have been spooky quiet, and I don't know if there's a mystery team that's going to emerge. You know, I had heard that, like, uh, the the Buccaneers were thinking of moving on from Todd Bowles. I hope not. Todd Bowles coached his head off yesterday Mm -hmm. and in the first Mm -hmm. round and late in that season. I I think that would be the wrong move. So I'm going to keep my eye on, on the Atlanta Falcons, who might just be doing due diligence with some of the guys they hire. Uh, and, and Belichick himself might also be waiting a little bit because he wants to see what else might emerge before he makes any decisions. Is Mike Vrabel a good coach? I think so. Yeah, I think so. You know, if I was looking for that Belichick kind of guy without the baggage, Vrabel would be my guy. If I was out in, uh, you know, in, with the Chargers, uh, I would be looking at him. Um, you know, and, and we're going to see what happens with that. Um, but you know, right now the knock on Vrabel was that he was having a lot of. Uh, uh, issues with two different sets of general managers. And that's interesting. That's something you have to watch out for. That can often be a yellow flag because these guys come in and right away when there's a loss or two, they're like, well, I couldn't pick that guy. I need to draft a guy. I need to make a trade. You want to watch out for that. I'm surprised I haven't heard more about Vrabel getting a lot of high-profile interviews during this cycle. What about Dan Quinn? Because there's a lot of Seahawks fans that understand the connection to Dan Quinn and the Seahawks head coaching vacancy, but they also watch Dallas play in the playoffs, and they're like, uh, that guy? Yeah, You know what's funny? Uh, it, it's like, you know, 
Cowboys fans are fire McCarthy and national people. Fire McCarthy. Fire McCarthy. They don't get it done. They're not getting the job done. And then I watch, you know, the, the Cowboys give up 48 points. Okay, there was a pick six, so I guess it's 41 points uh, to the Packers. And it's like, oh, Bob Quinn has five head coaching interviews. I'm like, are we sure? Yeah. Are we really sure this is good? You know, he's obviously got experience as a head coach. He's pretty well regarded as a coordinator. I guess I wonder sometimes about how these guys just rise right back up to the top of the list. And, you know, he had, you know, he's got Micah Parsons and Tank Lawrence and a bunch of cornerbacks who get pick sixes and things like that. And it looks very exciting. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't turn against Bob Quinn, Dan Quinn, excuse me. I wouldn't say he's a bad choice. I just wonder why is it him when there's these other coordinators and these other people out there who've had more success and might have some more uh, unique and innovative ideas. Is there, is there a kind of a worry that you might be trying to, bring back some old magic in Seattle by bringing back Dan Quinn because he had such success <laughs> there with the great team. And you're kind of like John Schneider's familiar with them. You know, Bobby Wagner is still with the Seahawks. It remains to be seen if he'll be with the team next season. But is there any danger in when a team just tries to, and I'm not saying the Seahawks are trying to do this, but like recreate what was there before? Yes there's always a big danger. I think the Patriots are, have that danger with Jared Mayo right now, and I think that would be the case there. Yeah, yeah The Legion of Boom isn't coming back. You know, you're not going to draft Richard Sherman in the sixth round. Uh, so some of, some of these things were lightning in the bottle, and I assume if you get rid of Pete Carroll, it's because you want to have something that feels a little fresher and different there. So, uh, you know, again, I, I wouldn't say that this would be a disastrous hire, but, like, you, you know, Vrabel would come in, defensive coach, has had some defensive success recently and come in with a different mindset. So, you know, maybe if you're going to really do a reboot, do a reboot and not say, hey, get me a different flavor of the same thing that I've been eating for the last 15 years. Mike, appreciate the time and the insight. Uh, Looking forward to conference championship weekend. Have a good one. You got it. Talk to you soon. That is Mike Tannier from The Messenger breaking the NFL playoffs down first and some of the offseason discussions as well. I'm I'm glad you asked about Bill Belichick because, yeah, he's interviewed apparently twice Mm -hmm. for the Atlanta Falcons, which does crack me up because, you know, I understand you have to go through this due diligence process, but it's like... What are the what's the substance of the interview? It's like I'm Bill Belichick. Yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, here's my driver's license. It's really me. <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. I've won a bunch of Super Bowls. Don't you think it would be Bill Belichick asking most of the questions? Yeah. It'd be like I get complete power, right? Total power. Yes, I'm gonna and you're, I want you're gonna let me much. do whatever I want. Are you would you would you worry about his age at all? That he would need a few years to put his culture into place, and then you wonder if he's still going to have the energy to do everything that you need to do as an NFL I don't head know, coach? I don't know if I'd be his age, but for me, it would be you're not going to have full personnel control. And maybe he doesn't take the job then, but like that, right. it, it, I think that's what most people would say has been the biggest issue in New England, more so than his coaching, right? Mm-hmm. Has been him having absolute control, not having a general manager who kind of can make those decisions for him. And you right. look at the acquisitions and the way they've used their salary cap and the guys they brought in it just hasn't worked out. So I think what you would want would be, hey, listen, we're going to, we have this personnel guy that we love. You just focus on coaching. That's what you're best at. Come in, do that. And I think that solves a lot of the age concerns, right? Because you're cutting down his workload. But if he was coming in and demanding, I'm not going to work with a personnel guy, I get to make those decisions, then I think it's a big concern. Kevin Woodley's going to join us at 8 o'clock. We'll talk some goaltending. Uh, I do wonder how the Canucks will run out their goalies ahead of the All-Star break. So they play tonight against Chicago. 
Wednesday against St. Louis. Then they get a couple days off, and they play Saturday against Columbus. And then it's the all-star break for a week, but not necessarily for Thatcher Demko because he's going to go to Toronto and participate in the all-star festivities. So uh, I know we had someone text into the Dunbar Lumber text line, and they said, well, I hope it's Casey DeSmith tonight against Chicago. Get Thatcher Demko as much rest as possible. So we talked to Kev about that. I also want to talk to Kev just about the goaltending situation in Toronto and yep. what they're going to do. Are they really waiting for just Joseph Wool to be healthy, and is that the right plan for them? Uh, hopefully it's not. Um, but uh, So we'll talk to Kev uh, in about 10 minutes. This is an interesting text, and it's from Ed from Bristol, UK. Love the show. We are huge in England. The Halford and Bruff show. Especially Bristol. Uh, Ed texts in, I've just flown out to Vancouver for the game this evening. I'm gutted, very English, that Bedard is injured, but it should be a great question. I heard your bit about the Newcastle-Sunderland game. That's a big derby uh, in Northeast England. And the rivalry in football here versus the, NH- versus the NHL. We used to have fan commentary as an option on Sky Sports, whereby two opposing fans would be in the booth stoking each other up and commentating the game instead of the usual anchors was always hilarious. Do you think the networks your side would do this for hockey? For example, put a Bruins fan and a Habs fan together for a game. And then says, P.S. Shout out to my brother Henry and Comox, who just got his Canadian citizenship. Congratulations mm-hmm. to Henry and Comox. Do you think the NHL or do you think Rogers, I no. suppose? No? I think there's too much risk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to be really carefully vetted. I guess, like... You know, Steve Dangle's not with Rogers anymore, but he's he would they they tried that a little bit. I think mm-hmm. it was like watch the game with Dangle or whatever. And he's you know a broadcaster. Right. He's a Leafs fan. That's how he came to prominence. So mm-hmm. I guess if it was kind of something like that, where it was semi pro or a high profile fan, right, and you pair two of them yeah. together, just like pulling two people off Twitter or like HF boards or something, right. <laughs> I think there's a little too much risk. How much of a delay would it be on? So when Dangle did it, was he was the game playing and he was commentating over the game? Two or was was it a two screen thing where you'd watch the game with the regular play by play and color guys and then he would be on YouTube talking he, about it? He the was game? kind of just talking over it. You could hear the commentary kind of slowly in the background. But he would talk over it and would be sitting there watching it, and there would be two screens, one with the game on it and one showing him. Oh, I see. And you okay. would just see his reaction. Two screens on that. Like you would, but, but like you didn't have to go screen. back. Like a split screen. Like a split okay. screen. Okay. Because yeah. I can't understand how people watch the game while they're watching, watching people else. talk about well, the it's game. Taken like it's on the, too much. It's, it's taking much on the YouTube me. reaction video, mm. uh, I guess, category, which is huge with the youths, yeah, where I pretty much that. you're watching people yeah. react to another video. And it, it, it works along those lines. So obviously it's aimed at a much younger demographic, but believe it or not, a lot of the kids, that's how they watch and that consume their their entertainment and they do and it, it does really well like yeah. reaction videos on youtube do really well monetarily i think it's just too much for me oh no i agree you know, i mean like, i would never be able to but i watch not, somebody else watch yeah. a Canucks game that'd be just yeah. really weird for I me i didn't but. grow up with all these screens so my brain isn't like it's too i i watch the game i've got twitter going mm-hmm. at a few texts with my buddies and for me like 
that's enough. I don't need yeah. to hear more voices. Because yeah. I, I agree. find even with like the Manning cast, like if the game is bad, I'll watch the Manning cast because sure, that's yeah. going to be entertaining. But if it's like a close game, I don't. I'm like, no, I'm locked in on the game. I want to exactly. know exactly what's happening and all I don't want to hear people having conversations. No, exactly, right? Game, and I do right? think, you know, the to, uh, to Ed from Bristol's point, I don't know about, you know, Rogers or, or, or like TNT in the States doing it, but I could see fans starting this kind of thing on like Twitter or, you know, Twitch or something like that, uh, an alternative form where it is this kind of, hey, you have the game on and then have our thing on separately and we'll like poke fun at each other and wind each other up. I could see that happening mm-hmm. more than official NHL broadcast going in on it. Okay, Kevin Woodley's going to come up next on the Halford and Brough Show on Sportsnet 650.